Welcome to the Fredrickson Health Show, highlighting expert practitioners from health, fitness, injury prevention, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. If you are into upgrading and optimizing your health, this podcast is for you. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here is your host, Dr. Robert Fredrickson. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Fredrickson Health Show. Today, we're going to talk all about thyroid health, and in particular, we're going to talk about Hashimoto's. It's a natural treatment strategies to address this. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Omar Actor. He's a board-certified um, internist with a private practice here in Austin, Texas. Um, his practice is focused on holistic approach to chronic disease management. He completed his internal medicine residency in New York City and worked as a hospitalist in a large ac- academic center in New Jersey before moving to Austin. Um, he strongly believes in treating um, patients as a whole and incorporating aspects of functional medicine in his practice. He also serves as a board a member of the American Holistic Health Association, and he also hosts another podcast called Better Medicine, which you guys should all check out. Outside of medicine, he has three young boys, which keep him very busy, as you can imagine. Dr. Actor, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to speaking with you. Yes, and um, it's been, it's been fun to just... Uh, to be around you and to watch kind of your journey. And, you know, we met um, in person, I want to say three years ago, and you were just getting your, um, your feet wet, if you will, into functional medicine at the time. And you were still working an uh, emergency room shift, I believe at the time. Uh, hospitalist shift. Hospitalist shift. And, um, and it's been amazing to kind of see your, um, I guess, transformation, if you will, if you call it that, but just your journey into functional medicine. So just tell anyone, anyone listening, um, how you got in, why you got into medicine, and then how you found functional medicine and how you've kind of made this shift into more of seeing the patient as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I came from a family of doctors and uh, both my parents were physicians and uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles and, and even cousins, older cousins were physicians. So in, in a way, it was really all I knew. And I was the firstborn in my family. And so um, you know, growing up in in Pakistan, where I'm from, you don't have undergrads. So you have to decide pretty early on what track to take. And you end up kind of deciding between a science track that primarily contains biology, chemistry, and those subjects versus more of a business and non-science route. So you pretty much have to decide that at the age of about 16 or 17. And once you're, yeah, it's very early. And once you're done with um, about 13 years of, uh, of schooling, you go straight into medical school as opposed to four years of undergrad over there. So it's mm. a bit different over there. Um, but that does mean that someone at the age of about 18 or 19 will go into medical school, uh, probably about 19. And so, you know, you, you have to really early on try to figure out where you're more, you're, you're excelling in academically a little bit more. And then Based on that, you'll choose your subjects and then apply to medical school that way. So it was almost like a no-brainer to me just with, with my background, with my interest. Um, you know, I didn't really know what medicine was like or what, uh, what, what my experience would be like. So it was going a bit into the unknown, but I had a lot of support around it and uh, with my family. And so um, really decided to take that leap into it. It was almost like my destiny in a way. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was the natural path carved out for me. And I got into medicine that way. And then I moved over to the States for internal medicine residency 
and working in a hospital system after that. But what really happened in that journey was as I learned more about um, the inpatient world and the medical world as a whole on how, how it works, you know, I just realized that there was something missing in my own satisfaction when it comes to, when it came to seeing patients, when it came to using a more holistic approach, using aspects of diet lifestyle and more of a deeper dive into patients. And when I felt that dissatisfaction, I looked to exit the hospital a little bit more and focus more in the outpatient world where I felt I could really help people and get down to the, the root of their issue. And so when we moved to Austin about three years ago, that's when I started this practice. And that's where we met as well uh, early on before the pandemic. So that was quite a while ago. Right, it was right. a different world at that time. Seems so, like forever. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, it's, it's been an interesting journey. You know, it's been a lot of, a lot of learning, I would say, um, after medical school and after residency, because a lot of what I'm faced with in the practice is not stuff that they teach you over there. And so um, I have a lot of chronic complex issues that I need to be able to work through in patients. And, um, and that happens when you continuously learn and, and just get better with experience. Wow, so that, I didn't know that you guys started school so early over there. So how old were you when you graduated uh, medical school? Um, I was uh, about 24 when I graduated medical school. That's crazy. That that's like when I started a chiropractic school when I was, you know, I think 24. So you, you're already yeah, yeah. graduated, because you're done, you, you know, and starting your residency. And how old are you yeah. when you completed your residency? Um, I was about, I think, 28 or yeah, about 28 when I completed residency. Because now bear in mind the medical school over there is five years as opposed to four. Oh wow. So and it's even longer. So wow. it's so it's an extra year plus the in in transitioning from um, over there to to come here to do residency you do lose a year in applications and completing your USMLE exams and stuff like that because um, it's not like a perfect match where school ends there and you start here so mm. it, it, instead of four years it is almost like a six-year journey so there there is a couple of years that so an extra year of high school and two extra years in terms of medical school and getting to residency here so, but you still end up uh, younger than the average um, uh, student out of the medical school here. Yeah, but still, you're graduating. I mean, 24 re residency at 28. That's you know unheard of. I know kids over here that are starting school. You know, taking yeah. a four-year hiatus. You know, for whatever reason to work or whatever. But right. yeah, so you got an early start uh, from the get-go, and I, that's amazing. So, did you know about functional medicine before? I know you, or were you searching for answers for, for why your patients, you know, weren't getting better with the traditional medical model? Yeah, I didn't know about functional medicine before. Um, I, I knew deep down that there was more of a holistic approach, more of a approach where I could, I could, you know, not tunnel into just one specialty or one system, but I didn't know what that looked like practically and what, you know, what that's described as until I came across functional medicine, which was more through uh, people like Dr. Mark Hyman and um, other, uh, the more pioneers in the space. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for them and the, the amount of time they've been doing this and all the expertise and experience they have. So that was really my introduction into the world. And once you get into that world, then it's just one after another, you find more people, you find more um, resources, more books, 
um, more courses and things like that. So it's, you know, the knowledge is kind of a daily type of thing to, to learn more and more and then apply that on patients and, and get more experience. That's awesome. And you, you mentioned books. And I think that's a question I, I get asked a lot is what books did you first um, get inundated with and what books would mm -hmm. you recommend to others who maybe are looking to uh, follow the same path as you? Maybe they're a clinician, maybe they're yeah. just a general health. Now, what, what are some books that you recommend people get started with? There's so many. Um, so it depends really what topic you want to you want to touch. Uh, I think that um, Dr. Hyman has a lot of good books talking about nutrition. Um, he has one on blood sugar. He has one on the the intersection between. It's called Food Fix. The intersection between nutrition and our the way our um, political and other systems are set up and the interplay between them. Um, if you want a more of an, uh, an autoimmune uh, thyroid, things like that, Dr. Karazian, mm -hmm. Dr. Karazian yeah. is yeah. another one that has written a couple of books. One is on, on brain health. One is on thyroid health. Thick books. Those were very thick books. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those were excellent. His courses are great. I've benefited a lot from him. Um, and then there are folks in the, in the field, physicians in the field of hormones as well. Um, Dr. Sarah Gottfried has mm -hmm. a book called The Hormone Cure. Yep. Dr. Uh, Uzi Reyes, um, R-E-I-S-S, -S, I believe. Um, he has a couple of books that I have on hormones as well. So a lot of different people have written on different topics. Um, trying to think if there's any other books that come to mind. Um, I, have, I have a whole bunch in my office. Um, I know you do. That's it, why I wanted to ask this question. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, Dr. Susan Blum has one on healing arthritis. Um, which is great for rheumatoid arthritis and other uh, arthritis conditions. So yeah, there, there's a ton of them. It just depends on what topic you're looking for, but you don't get taught a lot of nutrition or a lot of, or any functional medicine really in medical school. So a lot of these concepts are new when you come out of medical school. Right. And you got out of medical school. I mean, I'm not going to say recently, but within the past 10 years, right? Yes. Uh, 2013. And so th that I've always, I've always known that. And, and it's, I've always, one of those things that I like to talk with clinicians about is, Hey, like you're not taught this stuff in school, mm -hmm. you know, well, where did you learn it from? Like you went to mm -hmm. courses, you, you know, researched outside the box and you read the books, you know, but what is it an hour or two on nutrition? It's basically like just the macronutrients, you know, carbohydrates, fat, and protein. And that's about it. Refer to a dietitian. Is that kind of, you know, the, gist yeah. of it, the cliff notes version? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm trying, I'm struggling to even remember um, <clears throat> specific nutrition courses, classes, anything that we had in medical school. And we, we really didn't over there. Um, we over here, I think there's something like eight hours in medical school given total to a, 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 a United States medical student coming out of school here, which is very little um, over there. I'm just trying to remember even a, a dedicated class specific to nutrition, which um, I don't recall. Right. So I, and I think that's kind of standard for a lot of the, the schools here, you know, mm -hmm. and overseas is there's not a lot of nutrition, not a lot of focus on it. You know, it's more right. pharmacology, emergency medicine, you know, uh, radiology, et cetera, but nutrition is kind of on, on the back end. Mm -hmm. But I think now right. we're seeing kind of the importance of it. And I, and I know clinicians see the importance of it and they're asking questions, questions I've never mm -hmm. been asked before ever. I guess the pandemic spurred a lot of that is, but, but now I'm getting questions on vitamin D, magnesium, like, you know, what's the best type of magnesium? And I, and I can tell them, you know, what, what, vitamin D, like we, we need it. We need a vitamin D. 
why do we pair vitamin D and K2? So I'm getting questions that I never got yeah. asked before. And I think it's good because I think the doctor getting asked by the patients. And I think the patient and the doctor are like, Hey, I, I need to know this stuff because mm-hmm. you, you want to have an answer. And so yeah. for, for you though, in, in your practice, and at first you started off as a direct model mm-hmm. and tell us about that and why, why you wanted to go direct. And then kind of the transition you've seen, I guess, in your own experience while opening up your own practice, because I've, I've seen you kind of, um, transition and it's been very cool to watch yeah i started as a more of a primary care direct primary care practice and the reason to go into direct care and what that means is that i don't bill any insurance and it's more of a cash pay practice is that you aren't really then dictated by any third parties whether they be insurance companies or they be you know governmental agencies or anything like that you really have the onus to practice in the the freedom that you have as dictated by your license and so i i really like that model um, it gives me the freedom to see the patient as long as i need to see them uh, i'm not rushed um, in a visit um, i am not limited by the number of things i can talk about so there's there's a lot of benefits by being outside of insurance um, so to speak and so um, that's kind of the direct model i started off more in primary care on a subscription basis. And I've since evolved that to more of a fee for service because I've, you know, noted that not, you know, not everyone has needs that are ongoing. Some people just want to have a very detailed initial visit and then may not have um, further uh, follow-up needed. Other people need more follow-up. So I needed something that I could cater to both as opposed to committing everyone into that same monthly model. And so uh, I transitioned that slowly and I think I've gotten to that right point where it's uh, where I feel like the, the type of patients I'm looking to treat and help out um, are the, the type of patients that I'm getting. Not to say that I can't see anyone. I, I do take everyone and see everyone within, um, within reason, but it, it just meant that I'm trying to focus less on primary care and more on specific areas of focus. And because, you know, I I do think that there is a lack of expertise in that area and that void is something I'm trying to fill. Yeah. And it's cool that you've, you know, just kind of evaluated your own practice and said, Hey, we started off membership and then you really said, well, maybe you're getting your patients better. So, so much faster that they didn't need to come in as a membership model. So then maybe you say, Hey, maybe a direct to feed feed of service is more applicable because we know in functional medicine, a lot of people get better and um, mm-hmm. they might not need you unless something yeah. pops up, you know, and so then you can pay a fee. So in, in your experience, so I know there's a lot of different um, mindsets out there about this, but like people say, we need to niche down. Um, we need to, you know, find a, a patient focus, but we want to treat everybody. Right. But then, mm-hmm people still have the focus for like, Hey, we, we specialize in maybe this subset of conditions. And, and for you, when we talked earlier, you said yours is more thyroid health and Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. And did, was that um, something you wanted to start off with? Or was that just kind of something that you just started seeing your practice more and more and people started mm-hmm. referring for those conditions? Yeah, that's a really good question. I started seeing Hashimoto's more and more in my practice. And as I currently do, where people would either come in with a diagnosis or they would have those symptoms and we would find Hashimoto's because it is the most common autoimmune condition. And so, you know, I was kind of faced with needing a better approach, not just for Hashimoto's, but for autoimmunity in general. I think there is a significant void because really what's going on is that all of these conditions are being treated by 
the specialist that um, that within that um, the area that the disease occurs in. So your gastroenterologists are treating your your ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and your neurologists are treating MS, right? Um, endocrinologists are treating Hashimoto's, but there's no real um, autoimmunologist, if you will, right? Mm. There's no person that is really treating autoimmune disease as a whole clinically. Um, you know, you, you can argue rheumatologists, but they're also limited in what they're treating in, in um, like SLE, lupus, uh, Sjogren's, things like that. But, you know, that one person that can understand the immune system from a, a, like a, a deeper immune perspective, but also see the clinical implications of various immune system dysregulations, dis disorders, and then treat them. So um, I'm doing my best to kind of fill that void as best I can. And so it, it was, it came from really a, um, just a need for the patients that I was seeing. Yeah. So you're just seeing more and more people come in with maybe thyroid issues or maybe undiagnosed Hashimoto's. And um, yeah. can you tell people kind of what some of the tests that you run for, to identify Hashimoto's for someone who's maybe doesn't know, maybe mm -hmm. they think they have symptoms of an underlying thyroid issue, but they've been to the, to the doctor and they've been told they're normal. What, what would a patient right. do to advocate for um, additional lab testing to maybe see if they have underlying issues like Hashimoto's? Right. So it's important for patients to know that conventionally they're, they're tested um, with their TSH levels. And the TSH is a thyroid stimulating hormone. And it's actually not your thyroid hormone. It's the signal that comes from the pituitary gland down to the thyroid, which is the gland, a you know, little, little butterfly shaped gland in your neck that stimulates the production of thyroid hormones, which are T4 and T3. And so that um, is the main test that's done. And on the basis of that, you're really put on thyroid medication if you're hypothyroid um, or just told that everything is okay. But what we know about Hashimoto's is that it's an immune system dysregulation that causes inflammation and attacks the thyroid gland. And unless you do antibody levels for the thyroid markers, you're not going to get the answer because you can have absolutely normal thyroid labs, TSH, T4, T3, but have Hashimoto's. It just depends when you test because the TSH fluctuates quite a bit. Right. So the thyroid antibodies are primarily thyroid peroxidase antibody or TPO and antithyroglobulin antibody. Um, out of these two, probably TPO antibodies are the more common ones that show up. Um, and, and they're really pretty um, inexpensive to do most of the time. So it's, it's something that should be routinely run on anyone that is coming in with general symptoms that they can't figure out, fatigue, GI symptoms, brain fog, um, you know, just, just general uh, menstrual symptoms, things like that. If, if, there's a, if there's a lot of symptoms, especially in a young female, that's a test that should be done across the board without thinking twice. That's awesome. So we need to advise patients who maybe think they have some symptoms of Hashimoto's, but they haven't been diagnosed, but they're still struggling with weight gain, um, fatigue, brain fog, <clears throat> to test their TPO antibodies, test maybe thyroglobin mm -hmm. antibodies, like you said. And for anyone listening who, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, who doesn't understand thyroid health, can you, under, can you like let them know, like, what does a high TSH mean? What does a low TSH mean? What mm -hmm. does not enough T4 or too much T4? And what does that conversion irregular, mm -hmm. irregularities look like? And just explain yeah. kind of more, more of that in a simplified version for some people, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Um, so 
basic thyroid physiology is that the TSH is going to be released from this pituitary gland, which is in your brain, and it goes down to your thyroid gland and it pr promotes the production of thyroid hormones. <clears throat> once you, um, once that TSH signal comes in, you produce T4 and T3 in the thyroid gland. Primarily you produce T4. Most of the, the hormone is T4. But when you go peripherally in, in different tissues in the body, the T4 then gets converted into T3. Okay, so T3 <clears throat> is the metabolically active version of thyroid hormone that then goes <clears throat> to all the cells and causes thyroid, um, your, your thyroid hormones to function. So that's when you're talking about the conversion, you're talking about converting T4 into T3. Some people, when they have Hashimoto's, have a problem with that conversion. And so they can have a normal amount of T4 coming in, but they have too little T3. And they may require um, T3 as an exogenous hormone being given to them. Uh, other people may require T4. It just really depends on your situation. But um, the point is that those are your thyroid hormones. And then they go back and they have a negative feedback loop with the pituitary gland to um, either raise your TSH if you're not producing enough thyroid hormones, in which case your TSH is high, and that indicates hypothyroidism. So it's a, it's kind of a counterintuitive if you think about it, right. but it's 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 a negative feedback. So um, when your TSH rises above four, four point five, in that that range, that's when you're talking about developing um, hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. That in conjunction with a low T four, low T three will indicate hypo, low thyroid function. And conversely, if you have high T4 and T3, for whatever reason, uh, you know, if you have Graves' disease, which is a, uh, another autoimmune condition affecting the thyroid gland, but in this case, causing hyperthyroidism, um, or whatever the factor might be, too much thyroid hormone, if you have too high T4 and T3, then it's going to shut off your production of TSH in the negative feedback loop. So you're going to have low TSH. So it depends where you are on the scale. Um, but it's it's important to not just test for TSH, but also T4 and T3 levels. Definitely. Do you ever test for reverse T3? Yes. So reverse <clears throat> T3 is another um, marker to test for. Reverse T3 is basically when um, your part of your T3 hormone, that is your active hormone, part of it goes into reverse T3, which is metabolically inactive. It's almost like a brake pedal for your thyroid gland. It's a mechanism where it can shuttle some of that excess T3 into reverse T3. But some people can have too much reverse T3 and have issues with low thyroid because of chronic inflammation, because of stress, um, because of pathogens, things like that, that can cause too much T3 production, uh, excuse me, reverse T3 production. So uh, okay. when you know that, you may need to work on that situation and try to decrease that pathway conversion. And thyroid health, you know, it, it seems complicated, right? Especially if someone who's just doing the labs on their own. So, of course, from everything you said, we need to go see a practitioner to, to get these markers evaluated uh, correctly. In your opinion, um, Doc, what, what are the things we look at? If someone's got, you know, maybe they have high TSH, mm -hmm. um, some conversion issues, maybe they do have Hashimoto's. Should we also look at um, the guts or liver health? And how do you look at that in your practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... The main thing I try to tell people is this point that Hashimoto's is a multi-system inflammatory condition, and it really needs to be treated as such, which means that it affects virtually every system in the body. 
Mm. And so, and I'm not talking just about like hypothyroidism because hypothyroidism, yes, it, it also affects many different organs because you need good thyroid uh, levels for, let's say, gallbladder function. You need good amount for um, the motility of your GI system. All of this can be affected if you have hypothyroidism and it's untreated. So you do need to be on thyroid replacement for that. Now, with Hashimoto's, uh, the point is you can be on thyroid replacement and you still have problems in various different systems because there's an inflammatory uh, cascade, inflammatory issues going on that affects your brain, causing brain fog, fatigue, cognitive issues um, that can affect your GI system, cause intestinal permeability issues, cause SIBO or bacterial overgrowth. Um, it can cause immune system dysregulation. Uh, even when you talk about liver and liver health, so it can impair detoxification mm. pathways. So there are, there are um, it affects female hormones in that system. Um, and, uh, and, and so many other systems. And, and so it's just important to, you know, understand that it depends on what the patient is coming in with in that you have to look at what the, what's, what else might be going on with them. Right. And so in, in your opinion is, is Hashimoto's, is it a genetic factor or is it lifestyle and genetics together and what are because I know we're not born you know some, some people are but we're not born with you know a thyroid we're not we're not born with hypothyroidism right there's mm -hmm. genet or there's a lot of different factors that play into that what what are some of those factors that in your opinion that can maybe be prevented or minimized for maybe someone who's younger who mm -hmm. maybe has a history in their family of you know thyroid this disorder or disease, what can they do to start maybe making proactive steps to prevent that later on in life? Yeah. So it, it's basically the latter. It's a combination of your genes and your environment, which is the case for all autoimmune conditions. There is a genetic predisposition, but when we're talking about genetic predisposition, we're talking about a, a set of different genes coming together and laying the groundwork for what can develop in your life if they're the right environmental triggers. So it doesn't resign you to having the illness, to having the autoimmune condition. Now, there are some genetic conditions that if you have it, you're almost 100% sure of having that. You know, that's a very small segment, segment of um, your, the conditions, the chronic conditions that we're talking about. But in this case, it's more of different genes and they predispose you to various conditions and some sort of environmental trigger. For some people, it can be a stressful, a major stressful event. Um, it could be a dietary trigger. It could be um, a pathogen or some form of inflammation that has turned on those genes. So it's always a combination of genes and environment. Uh, I want to make very clear to people that they don't feel responsible for their autoimmune condition, meaning they don't feel like they've caused it from something they've done, okay? Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that we're not like shifting blame on anyone where it's like, you know, you, you could have, if you did this, you would have prevented it. But generally, yes, there are, you know, just by trying to live an overall healthy lifestyle, um, focusing on um, diet and minimizing processed foods and just having a more cleaner, healthier diet and all those aspects of lifestyle that we, we all know, but we just have to keep reminding ourselves, which is sleep stress management exercise as much as possible um, or, or as much as tolerable. And, um, and so if, if, you, if you do these, you can give yourself the best chance of 
making your genes work for you as opposed to against you. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that makes so much sense. Yeah, because what do they say? Genetics um, load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So Exactly. That's a good so, And so with that being said, and you mentioned a lot of different things that people, we all know we should, we should exercise. We all know we should eat better. Uh, we all know we should sleep better. What is one of the biggest levers of lifestyle medicine that you that you want to pull first when the patient comes mm-hmm. to you and they have Hashimoto's? What is yeah. one, if you say, hey, if you can only choose one of these three, mm-hmm. what would you choose, choose first and why? And especially because everyone's got time issues and financial yeah. issues. What is something easy? Yeah. Um, you know, it would be between diet and sleep, I would say. Okay. Um, and I say that because different, situa- different situations may account for um, you would focus on diet versus to focus on sleep. Now, in the case of sleep, we know that good restful sleep uh, modulates your immune system in a way in which you're um, more likely to, to benefit the immune system and, and more, less likely to have a flare up and just a benefit in your condition overall. Whereas poor sleep can do the opposite. Mm. With diet, it, you know, if someone is at a stage which, which is early on and they haven't made a lot of dietary changes, they can, there's a lot of things that we can try to do to either eliminate certain groups of foods or bring in certain foods that can help them um, in determining their particular sensitivities and their particular foods that they don't tolerate well and their immune system doesn't like well. Um, and, and, and just give them the best you know, overall health. So if someone is generally sleeping well, but they're coming in eating a poor diet, processed foods, fast foods, things like that, then we'll try to focus on the diet component. Whereas someone who's had a lot of experience with their illness may have a lot of the dietary triggers taken care of, and then we focus on other things. So, but those two are, are two key factors. So sleep and diet for sure. Um, what are some consequences for someone who maybe goes undiagnosed with Hashimoto's for 10 years? And what if there's a higher number of TPO antibodies, does that necessarily equal more inflammation? What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's important to understand that higher antibody levels doesn't necessarily correlate with worse disease. And I say that because your antibodies don't itself cause tissue destruction. Your antibodies mark the thyroid tissue and then your T cells will come and do the actual destroying of the thyroid gland. So what that means practically is that you can have a antibody level of 50 or hundred and feel terrible if you have you know, other factors that are going against you in the immune system and you can have an antibody level of six, 700 and feel much better. So it, it, it varies from person to person and, and what other situations are going on in the immune system. But what, why antibodies can be beneficial is that A, it helps to diagnose it, obviously. Sure. But B, once you have that baseline of what the antibody levels are, you can track your own uh, overall illness and say, my antibody levels improved or they got worse, things like that. And that can be a general marker to, to what's better. But what you can't do is really compare antibodies from one person to another and say, well, so-and-so has, you know, such a high antibody, but feels much better. And I, I have very low antibodies. I feel worse. It's just much more complex than that. Is there consequences though, to being left undiagnosed or untreated for 10 years to the thyroid gland in particular? Yeah. So if, if you're undiagnosed or untreated now, first, you're going to have progressive destruction of the thyroid gland over time. 
So your need for thyroid hormone will arise and, and increase more and more. So that's going to be the number one thing. And number two, you're going to have unchecked inflammation going on and you're going to be basically going from provider to provider, looking for answers, um, looking to get better fatigue and weight gain and uh, all sorts of things could happen. And if that's the case, then, you know, you just won't get the answers that you need. And so um, left untreated, it can be very difficult to deal with. And, you know, there are a lot of people in various Facebook groups and things like that, that are just looking for better answers. And they don't have that out there in both in terms of explanation and in terms of treatment options. Um, so I think that, you know, it can be very bad left untreated. So it's, it's really important to try to look into the deeper causes and, and get there. Awesome. And so another question, um, answer this how, how you wish. Does every person who has Hashimoto necessarily need to be on a thyroid replacement prescription? No. Um, if, if Hashimoto's and thyroid, um, underactive thyroid are two distinct entities. So in time, yes, there's a possibility that you might need to be on thyroid hormone replacement because of enough destruction in the thyroid gland has occurred. But there's a lot of people with Hashimoto's with normal thyroid labs. And so uh, what's important to understand is that you have to look in, 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 in and of itself if you have hypothyroidism or not. If you do have hypothyroidism, then yes, it's important to be on thyroid replacement. And why I say that is because a lot of people are against medications in general and thyroid medication specifically, let's say. And what they have to realize is that you can do all the diet, lifestyle, supplements, uh, whatever you'd like to do, but unless your thyroid is, is functioning at a, a good level, you're not going to, it's going to be very difficult to have those changes and symptoms that you're looking for because the thyroid hormone is so important in regulating metabolism in every cell of the body. So um, not everyone with Hashimoto's has to be on thyroid replacement, but everyone who is hypothyroid should be on thyroid replacement. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Is there ever a, a situation where a patient maybe goes on a medication uh, for thyroid replacement and eventually starts doing everything you told them to do? They're doing the sleep, they're doing the lifestyle, they're doing the supplements. Um, everything's going in the right direction. The stress levels are, are maintained. Uh, is there ever, ever a situation where a person can get off thyroid replacement if, and get regain mm -hmm. normal uh, thyroid function again? Yeah, absolutely. And so there are many instances, and I think this is one of the problems that does arise in functional medicine where people are prematurely put on thyroid replacement. So you have situations where you're going in to see your physician and your TSH level is, you know, three, 3.5, something like that. And you have some fatigue, um, you know, you have some hair loss, you have some, um, a few gut issues, things like that. And automatically the thyroid gland is blamed for it. And you're put on thyroid replacement, right? Type of thyroid replacement. In my mind, that is more of a, you know, it, it's not the best approach because it's not overt hypothyroidism that that patient has that requires them to be on thyroid re replacement. Rather, it is a situation in which there something else is going on, be it their GI health or some other health. And that is causing some thyroid related um, numbers to fluctuate. So it's really important to have a, a good threshold with which you would start someone on thyroid replacement because some people will start on thyroid replacement, initially feel better and then feel worse. And so mm -hmm. 
my goal with some of the patients is to, especially asking them how they were diagnosed. So if they were diagnosed with numbers that you look at and you go like, well, this isn't really hypothyroidism, then those are the patients that I would try to work with to get off of thyroid medications. And, you know, some of the studies show that probably about a third of patients that have, uh, that are, that are on thyroid replacement can successfully come off of it with no symptom issues and no, and no, uh, and normal labs. That's awesome. Great to know. Yeah. And just uh, for anyone listening, um, I maybe it's more for my personal, my own personal knowledge is what, you know, I'm a chiropractor. I never got the prescribed medications. I, I was more the natural route, but what is, what is Synthroid? What is Armour? What are some of the differences um, in the medications themselves? Because I, I know some of those are more bioidentical and mm-hmm. maybe someone who knew that yeah. would maybe be less scared to take one of those medications if they needed mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so, um, so Synthroid or Levothyroxine is a more of a synthetic thyroid hormone that is primarily, that primarily contains T4 as opposed to T3. So when you talk about thyroid hormone replacement, you're really, um, you know, people, people feel very strongly about this because, you know, they, they kind of get really, um, you know, married to kind of one thyroid hormone replacement. And it's like, I use armor for everyone. I use levothyroxine for everyone. So what ends up happening is generally speaking, the conventional world and endocrinology, everyone like that is using Synthroid or levothyroxine, the synthetic form. And people in the more natural medicine world are using uh, the natural ones, Arma, thyroid, things like that, uh, nature thyroid and stuff. There's, for me, there's really no, um, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong because different people can react differently to it. Um, you know, the, the, some of the ingredients in the Synthroid, the fillers and things that they have, may not work well for someone, but may work well for someone else. So I think that that thyroid hormone replacement should be looked at as part of the puzzle, but you shouldn't put all your eggs in that basket of, I need to find the right thyroid hormone for for me and stick to that because it's just much more complex than simply getting on the right thyroid medication and then feeling better for the rest of your life. Right. So a lot of people will go, you know, they'll start with Synthroid and they'll go to something else and they'll go to something else and they'll feel better for a bit, but then not feel good after that and try to figure out why. Um, and, you know, the reason is because the answer doesn't lie entirely in thyroid hormone replacement. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I've, I have an analogy that I like to use for testosterone in, in men and basically usually men will start to get these symptoms of fatigue and mm-hmm. gaining weight. Maybe it's losing hair, maybe it's low sex drive. And so they go and get tested for testosterone and lo and behold, it's low. And so they think the answer to all their issues is getting mm-hmm. on testosterone right. replacement. And they think, but, but if you really look at their lifestyles, Hey, you're not sleeping at all. You're not mm-hmm. exercising. You're stressed out um, to the max, right? You're drinking alcohol every night. You're doing all these lifestyle factors that are totally probably causing it low testosterone but then they think just getting on testosterone is going to fix everything. Is, it, is that a similar analogy to maybe um, to thyroid in some regards that hey, in, in, it's more yeah. than just the thyroid. It's more than just the, you know, mm-hmm. the band-aid symptom. Yeah. In some ways, I think the analogy definitely works. I think that um, maybe the mechanism is different when you're talking sure. about Hashimoto's and inflammation and everything, but you're, you're absolutely right where uh, it has to be a two-pronged approach, which is uh, or, or a multi-pronged approach where you're, where you're replacing thyroid hormone adequately, 
but you're also taking care of everything else that worsens Hashimoto's. And that's really why you have the, the issues around this, where a lot of people go to their endocrinologist and they'll be on the right um, medication and they will get their labs drawn and the, their labs look absolutely fine. They can't figure out why they have fatigue, they, they, why they have all these other symptoms. And that's a side where you're just focusing on the medication and not really looking at anything else. And on the other hand, you can have a situation in which you're doing everything else right, but you're hypothyroid pretty obviously, and you need to be on replacement, but you, but you refuse to take that medication. So mm. there's problems with both sides. And I, I think a balance is needed and you're not going to get better if you just use um, one. So it's a whole body approach. Hey, yes, your hypothyroidism. Let's get you on a medication mm -hmm. that works for you. Find the right dose. But let's also address everything else that you mentioned, lifestyle, sleep, mm -hmm. the diet, yeah. managing stress all those things and let's marry those two together in the best way possible. Um, yeah. I, I do want to talk about supplements, but before we do that, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about specifically more diet recommendations that I hear a lot of different things in the communities around being gluten-free. Some people say we well, got to mm -hmm. be gluten-free for everything. And I've heard some really good things for being on a gluten-free diet with Hashimoto's in particular. Do you yeah. have any thoughts on that on being gluten-free for Hashimoto's? Mm. Yeah. So, um, I know it's very popular to be gluten-free now. And so, you know, I, I try to use it in against everything in a balanced way where we don't need to, you know, fully villainize gluten for every single person, but we do need to understand where it causes problems. And one of those problems is in Hashimoto's and the, and the, the phenomenon that's called molecular mimicry, where you, your gluten molecule resembles your thyroid gland molecule very, very closely. And so you, when you do consume gluten, you can get a thyroid reaction and not feel well overall. Um, when you do consume gluten, your, your perme intestinal permeability can suffer and your, those tight junctions can open up in the intestine. You can have um, immune system activation more so that way. So I think for someone who is struggling with Hashimoto's, going gluten-free is definitely worth it because for some people it can be a big, big game changer. And so it is worth trying for other people. It may not have that significant, um, a difference in their life. And if that's the case, then they can find a way to maybe have some gluten in their life. Um, but I think that just aiming for an overall health, uh, like a diet, um, a good diet approach to Hashimoto's and then also trying gluten-free is, is important. Yeah. And if someone has Hashimoto's and they go gluten-free, do they have to be gluten-free for life? What happens if they get gluten or they go out to a restaurant yeah. and they eat gluten again? Yeah. Do you have any remedies for that? Yeah. This, it's a tough one because when you're talking mechanistically, yes, you do have to be gluten-free. It, it's, it's an all or nothing thing because if you do even have a little bit of gluten that will disrupt the immune system. And, and so that, that's from a mechanism perspective. But what we have to be very careful about is that when I talk to people, I talk to people in real life situations in, you know, with, with a ton of struggles and a ton of, um, you know, things that are, are difficult. And so just saying to someone like never have gluten again, may not be very practical. And so sure. you have to understand people's, you know, sometimes, you may cause more harm in trying to get someone to, to remove something from their diet because that comes at the expense of a lot of social engagements, um, a lot of maybe going out to eat, which is a, a big source of family connection, friend connection, sure. um, overall happiness. So we want to be careful to not put people in a situation where their stress 
is increased around diet and dietary recommendations. But at the same time, we do want to understand the mechanism around gluten and how that can affect you. Yeah, I think I'm right with you. Just with the molecular mimicry with Hashimoto's and gluten, there's a lot of studies behind that. But also, at what expense do you avoid it at all costs? Because yeah. you're not going to have to eat. You're going to live in a bubble. You're going to stay yeah. at home, you know, 24-7. You know, there's got to gotta be a balance. And I think also just being resilient too, mm-hmm. use an enzyme where necessary. But if, you're, if you've done the protocols like you've, like you've taught and they go out to eat maybe every once in a while, maybe it's not as bad of a trigger as it yeah. could have been because they have everything else working um, optimally. And so with that being said, I want to talk about supplements and what supplements that you recommend for, um, I guess, general, general health, more foundational health, but also the things that you work more specifically for thyroid health. Hmm. Yeah. So foundational health, you know, if you were, um, vitamin D is one we've talked about quite a bit. Magnesium is very important because a lot of people are deficient there. Um, your omega-3 fatty acids are going to be very important sure. Um, those are kind of key foundational ones. And then if you're, go- if you're talking more specifically on Hashimoto's and the immune system, there are uh, selenium is another one that's been shown to decrease antibody levels. Um, vitamin D, like I mentioned, excuse me, is significant for uh, Hashimoto's because a lot of people have vitamin D deficiency. Um, myoinositol is another one with Hashimoto's that can be very beneficial. Um, glutathione is a, an antioxidant that gets depleted in a lot of the mechanisms around autoimmunity and Hashimoto's. So using um, glutathione or NAC to boost up antioxidant levels. Um, you can use short-chain fatty acids as well. Short-chain fatty acids like butyrate are compounds that are produced by the good bacteria in our gut, and they have various immune modulatory effects. So they, they benefit the immune system. So that can be either gotten through your diet or it can be gotten through supplement form. Um, trying to see if there's any more specific, you know, obviously zinc in the immune system can be very effective. So there are certain things that will be just beneficial from an overall immune perspective and certain things more specific to Hashimoto's. What are your thoughts on iodine and Hashimoto's? I know there's a lot of controversy mm-hmm. where some practitioners, yes, we need iodine. Some people say, hey, it's like kind of putting um, gas on a fire. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And I'm asking out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's a really important topic. It's a really difficult topic because I think a lot of people are in one camp or the other. Um, I yeah. have, the research that I've seen and, and the kind of um, a lot of the um, mentorship I take from like people like Dr. Karazian, who is, you know, pretty high up in the world of uh, immune system or, or let's say immunology research and Hashimoto's specifically, and also deals with patients on a practical basis with it, um, recommends against iodine in patients, both in supplement form and in dietary form. So um, it is uh, iodine restriction has been shown to be more beneficial than iodine supplementation. Now, when you, when you talk about overall thyroid health, iodine is an important supplement that is a is a, a mineral that helps in thyroid hormone formation. So you you when you talk about thyroid health in general, it's good to take iodine. But if you have Hashimoto's, iodine supplementation can cause a flare up um, mm. in a kind of a counter reactive way. So you want to limit iodine usage. Okay, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. All right. So is there any other supplements that we missed that maybe will be beneficial, or maybe someone who's trying to get off, or maybe someone who's subclinical. 
hypothyroid. Yeah. What are some supplements that you recommend in addition to what you already mentioned? Is there is there anything yeah, that comes you know, to mind? There probably there isn't a necessarily a if, if someone is subclinically hypothyroid, you want to figure out why that's the case. A lot of time that might involve your GI system, and there might be some GI disturbance there. There could be some dysbiosis going on. There could be SIBO or bacterial overgrowth mm-hmm. going on, uh, intestinal permeability, these types of things. So you want to try to get their digestive health in the best position possible. And when you do that, then you may repeat the thyroid numbers and it gets better. So it oftentimes goes back to the foundations and the fundamentals of diet, lifestyle, and GI foundational health, and then see the numbers from there. Um, in terms of focusing on the, the uh, thyroid health, it's, it's the same ones that we talked about a lot of um, vitamin D, selenium, uh, iodine, as far as just trying to get those minerals and cofactors that help thyroid hormone function. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. Really informative. Really, I love how you simplify thyroid health and the function, the physiology behind mm-hmm. uh, thyroid metabolism. So anyone listening to this, <clears throat> take another listen because Dr. Actor really explained it very well. Dr. Actor, I want to ask you a personal question. So let's get fun with this. I'm going to put it in gallery mode sure. for anyone watching online. But so Dr. Actor, if you had to put a billboard up in your hometown or back home, and it could say anything health related, one or two sentences or a couple words, what would you want people to know and why? Um, I would say that there is, yeah, I haven't thought of the exact wording of this, but um, I'm kind of, you know, I, I exactly what I want to tell people is that there are better ways to address their chronic disease. And I say that because a lot of people have, you know, a lot of people end up losing hope in the medical system because they've seen a practitioner or they have, um, you know, been to so many doctors and not gotten answers. They're still struggling and they feel like, you know, the, the medication isn't helping them. They feel like the, um, the approach isn't helping them or giving them the answer. They feel like they're not heard. And so I, I want those folks to know out there that if they have chronic uh, symptoms or a chronic illness, that there is a better approach, a more holistic approach. So that's what I would try to put in one line. Awesome. Now, there is a more holistic, better approach to chronic illness. Yes, there's a better way. Love it, yeah. love it. Yeah. Okay, um, if you had to put, or if you had to take something health-related, a device, gadget, biohacking tool, whatever you want to call it, on a desert or deserted island with you, um, what would mm-hmm. you take and why? And what would be your number one thing uh, or reasoning behind it? Mm-hmm. Would this be supplement specifically? It can or? be. It can be. Yeah, I've heard that yeah. whatever you want it to be. It, <laughs> it, it, it's been supplements in the past. Um, yeah. But I want to hear your answer. Yeah. So uh, it was a great question. I think so. I can answer that supplement wise. I think it's it's a tough one because there's so many good ones, and then also condition specific. Um, I think that. Um, because of the broad array of what it can provide, maybe magnesium might be the best, the yeah. best to take just only because, um, you know, it, it can, it can do so many different things from stress relief to, um, to, uh, you know, your, your GI system and things like that. So magnesium would be one vitamin D would be another, because we're finding more and more about vitamin, the immune functions of vitamin D. So, uh, it would be a close, close between those two for me. 
we we think exactly alike because my answer is always magnesium i i always i guess i cheat and i say hey i would probably gonna get vitamin d from the sun on this island so uh, that's, that's going to negate that um so yes we're, we're right on the same wavelength as far as that goes um dr actor is there any questions if we could reverse roles and you're interviewing me and you're asking me about thyroid health is there anything that i missed that you want more of the viewers or listeners to know about thyroid health or in particular hashimoto's um i think you know the 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 type of stuff that you're doing where you're just bringing this more to the attention and also talking to folks like myself who are trying to take a balanced approach i think that's the that's the key thing you know we we want to try to bring in opinions from people in the in the middle more so because too much too many of the times you hear opinions from either side which is you know maybe a lot of the natural medicine side and that ignores a lot of conventional medicine and then the conventional medicine side that ignores a lot of natural medicine so i think taking that balanced approach and trying to have conversations with people that is um it, you know is giving viewers of both sides is very important so i appreciate you doing that yeah, of course. I really like how you said that. And I, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. It, it should be a balanced approach and we shouldn't, you know, be fighting each other all the time. There's solutions yeah. to everything and we should, there's gotta be some common ground. It's not politics and healthcare. It shouldn't be that way. And uh, I think I'm going to name this podcast, a balanced approach to Hashimoto's because that, that was, yeah, perfect. that's, so, that's a perfect name. Yeah. That's a perfect name. So that's what, actually, thank you for that. We're going to name this podcast, mm -hmm. a balanced approach to Hashimoto's with Dr. Omar actor, Dr. Actor, this has been a amazing interview and I'm, You've got me. You've got me on fire to do more podcasts because this is so informative, and I love getting information out like this to the masses. Doctor Actor, where can people find you? Where can people find your podcast, your website? Do you take telehealth patients? And let everyone know where we can mm -hmm. find you at. Yes, yeah, so my website is uh, www.medinamedicine. That's m-a-d-i-n-a medicine.com. That's uh, that contains all the contact information if you want to get in touch. Um, the podcast is called Better Medicine. And that's available on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other um, the podcast platforms. It's basically just talking to people in, the, in this type of fashion where I'm trying to look for better ways to address chronic disease and different interesting topics. And so um, that's been really fun. And, um, and yeah, so I'd appreciate if people could listen to that. Awesome. And do you take telehealth patients or do you need to be seen at... Local no, I do take telehealth patients, but they, they have to be in Texas, okay. uh, at least to establish. So um, I, you know, telehealth patients anywhere in Texas, I can see if they happen to then move to a different state, then it's just once a year that they have to um, come back into the state. But that's, that's really the only limitation. Perfect. Well, Dr. Actor, thank you so much for coming on again today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking with you more in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fredrickson Health Show. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, leave us a rating and review. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our email newsletter for more information.